Hi, I'm Robert. And I'm Keegan. And you're listening to Brave New Space. Today, we have the Chief Operating Officer of TechCrunch, Ned Desmond, joining us today on Brave New Space. And for those of you who might be in a hole somewhere in a cavern hiding from COVID and have never heard of TechCrunch, TechCrunch is one of the leading American publishers, online publishers for technology, news, and related analysis. They have an increased amount of uh, coverage on the space sector, and we're excited to learn about uh, Ned's perspective on the space sector and what they're doing with TechCrunch. So, Ned, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So, just to jump right in, when did TechCrunch first start covering uh, this kind of this new space, the new space scene? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I guess we've really been at it pretty systematically for at least two years. Everybody loves space. TechCrunch's editors love space. And uh, it was a few years before that that we started to think about the startup world uh, more by category as opposed to just Silicon Valley. So we branched out and thought a lot about robotics, which is an interesting category, AR, VR, Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain and all of that. You know, it's really the most interesting phenomenon of the startup world in the past uh, five or six years that so many new categories of, of technology and products have become uh, startup zones. And uh, space, of course, is one of them. Not a, a huge category by any means, but, but one of the coolest and most exciting and demanding in a lot of respects. So uh, the TechCrunch team has been super eager to do more on space, and uh, we've really gotten busy on it in the past couple of years. And Ned, you uh, didn't just stick your toe in like a lot of uh, larger organizations do when they start looking at new space. I mean, whenever we hear something about a real player in the uh, startup sector uh, from Silicon Valley looking into new space, they always look into usually a software play and maybe someone doing something with Earth imaging, you know, a market that's already very, very proven out. But you actually invited uh, some people doing some very exciting stuff at the previous uh, TechCrunch space, uh, 2020. Some friends of the show of ours who were working on a little company by the name of OrbitFab. So what got them on your radar? One of the fun things about working at TechCrunch is uh, we, we think of coverage hand in hand with events that we might produce. So in all those categories that I, I mentioned, uh, we've produced events in AR, VR, in uh, crypto and blockchain, uh, several in AI and robotics. And so a year or so ago, we started thinking uh, hard about space because there were a lot of people we wanted to speak to. One of the great things about producing events is that it, it allows our editors to get to know a lot more people in the category, and that produces more coverage. Um, they get to know more people because we have to invite people to be on stage and think through the programming and uh, try to look smart about the people we have on stage. So that, that forces us to do a lot of critical assessment of who's who in the category. But um, uh, I'm part of that team that, that goes around doing some of this research. And I was, uh, to answer your question, I was at the Air Force Pitch Day a few months ago up in San Francisco, and I saw uh, Dan Faber from OrbitFab uh, pitch. And I thought, whoa, this is such a great idea. Gas stations in space. Who knew? <laughs> and he's, he's also a, a tremendous presenter on stage. And so I, I just chased him across the floor of the show and said, hey, 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 you know, you really ought to uh, think about TechCrunch. And we chatted for a while. And then I pushed him to apply for our startup competition. It's called Startup Battlefield. It's a big show that we have as part of our larger Disrupt show, the flagship for TechCrunch every fall in San Francisco. And uh, fortunately for us, uh, Dan did apply and he did get accepted to be one of the handful of companies that were on stage. There are actually a couple of other uh, space-oriented startups that have been in the Battlefield competition in the past couple of years. 
but Daniel, of course, is a real standout and um, only got us more excited about the prospect of doing a show on space. And he literally stands out with his height. (laughs) Dan Faber is a lot of guy. It's (laughs) a lot of arm, a lot of leg, and a a lot of emphasis when he's he's telling his story. So it's wonderful. He's perfect on stage. And you mentioned, Ned, about the, uh, you know, the different disciplines and domains that TechCrunch is looking at, you know, blockchain, robotics. And it's an interesting connection to space because space in many ways is a lot more than just launching launchers and satellites. And it's it's a very interdisciplinary area and and it can be argued that space will need lots of robotics and things like blockchain could be useful in space. And there's already some groups that are trying to find uh, applications on how where those areas intersect. Uh, yes, well, uh, I think the blockchain uh, evangelists are still looking for the application that works for blockchain. And it's not a category that is doing, you know, seems to be all that resilient right at the moment. So we'll see about blockchain. But certainly robotics is is endlessly interesting. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons robotics, robotics has something in common with space, which is that it's a small, incredibly technically demanding category that has a lot of wreckage. A lot of companies just haven't really made it in uh, robotics, apart from the big industrial guys who've been building them for automation uh, and manufacturing forever and ever. Uh, space is tough as well, and space depends on robotics, as you mentioned, in a, in a lot of ways, as well as a whole lot of other technologies. And I think, uh, you know, whenever I talk to technologists and entrepreneurs who are working in space, these are people who clearly love impossibly difficult problems because the environment is so harsh. The return on investment is so hard to determine. It's literally the other end of the spectrum from things like SaaS and uh, enterprise software, where you can uh, very readily chart out the likelihood of success of your company based on so many that have gone before. Space, not so much. It's a tough, tough category, but that only makes it more interesting and exciting. And uh, and it also has the unique attribute of being so heavily driven by uh, government money and defense money that that puts an interesting spin on it as well. And I think takes some of the pressure off of private VCs to try to support the effort uh, because, you know, the kinds of uh, return horizons VCs are looking at are, are maybe not super compatible with uh, the space world at this point. And Though you have to admit, it's certainly an improvement over how it was even, you know, five, 10 years ago. Uh, space companies today now have to are now very, very aware that they have to build out a business plan with a return on investment inside of something that is much more typical of a standard startup. Whereas back when this industry was just getting outlined, you were lucky if uh, there was even the suggestion of an ROI that was serious. Or if there was, it was an ROI in you know, 10 years or something to that effect. Uh, would you agree with that? Sentence? It's, it's, it's based on, on good use of life extension. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it is very healthy right now. I think you're absolutely right. It's gotten way better. Um, and I mean, there are gigantic examples of companies we all would have liked to have had a part in, uh, like SpaceX and there's an, a next generation coming along fast with rocket and planet and, and others that are already tremendously successful from a private valuation standpoint. So I think part of what has helped, of course, is this, it's not a partnership exactly, but a complementarity between NASA and the Defense Department and all these agencies writing contracts to these companies because they're so interested in expanding the capacity on the launch front in particular, but lots of other areas too. And that, of course, accelerating the development and the business prospects. 
for these companies um, that then in turn makes them more interesting to VCs uh, who, who are ready to fund them. So I think it's a pretty healthy dynamic right now. You've mentioned the fact that since the space industry has such a strong foothold in the gov- government as a customer, both for the military and for NASA, and uh, let's not forget uh, NOAA as well, that it really adds an extra degree of security for investors. So how has that impacted the way TechCrunch looks at not just space, but also other industries? Have you started to keep your ears to the ground a little bit more about what the military is looking at in terms of uh, products that they're trying to pull in? You know, that's an interesting question. Of course, robotics is in this arena, too. A lot of what's happened in robotics has been driven by DARPA challenges. And, um, you know, the same is true of autonomous vehicles. There are lots of interesting ways that model, uh, which is, of course, been around for a long time and uh, institutions like MIT and Berkeley have profited uh, greatly from it in terms of uh, research that's been carried out and companies like Boston Dynamics and others, just to take the example of robotics, um, made a lot of progress on the back of DARPA research grants and so forth. As far as defense in general, I think you're right. It's really an interesting category because there's so much going on. I wouldn't say that uh, we're really following it all that carefully. It would probably be tough for us because a lot of it's classified. Even in the space realm, you know, it was funny. I got a little comeuppance when I was at Air Force Pitch Day, and there was this other section of the show that was politely named something um, that was slightly obscure. But if I thought about it, it would have meant, Ned, you're not welcome here. (laughs) But I tried to walk in. You get a lot of that in this industry. (laughs) and, uh, And someone said, who are you? You don't have the right pass. And I said, oh, I'm just curious about this. Can I just watch this part of the pitch competition? No, there's the door. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that, that happens, of course, in any world where it's, you know, you're, you're invo- involving defense and so forth. So I think it might be a little bit tough. On the other hand, you know, I, I am personally very interested in what DIUX is doing in, in Silicon Valley, and they've iterated very quickly through their model. Um, and in, the, in their own way, they're contributing to a lot of technologies, you know, a huge array of technologies, including space, with their uh, fast track programs to get contracts to companies that can do something in the unclassified realm that the Defense Department's really interested in. I've heard many stories of um, startups getting a a contract through DIUX and that that really helped them subsequently to uh, attract more venture money. So we've gone over TechCrunch's outlook for the industry as we see right now, and uh, this all seems to be building towards trying to get as many of the, these new players into the roof at TechCrunch Space 2020. So, Ned, would you be willing to talk a little bit about the event uh, that is coming up and uh, give us kind of a bit of a sneak preview of uh, what type of players we can expect of those that we've talked about and those you maybe haven't mentioned yet? Yeah, absolutely. I am so excited about this show. I can't tell you. I, do, I always have a blast when I uh, have time to work on the programming of our shows. You know, our edit team does a fabulous job with it, but sometimes I come in and help. Uh, and this is one where I was really uh, very close to the programming. It's on December 16th and 17th. It was going to be in LA and El Segundo at the Sheraton there, but COVID is what it is. So it's now going to be a virtual show. But from my standpoint, that's great because the speakers don't have to travel as far and also attendees can participate from around the entire world. So I think we're going to have a big audience, quite a bit bigger than we normally do for one of these shows. But uh, we've had a, a great response to uh, our efforts to program this show. For instance, we have uh, Jim Bridenstine from uh, NASA is one of our headliners, uh, Steve Asakowitz from Aerospace, 
General Raymond and General Thompson uh, from Space Command and SMC, respectively, are on the agenda. And that's just obviously the government side of things, as well as Will Roper from the uh, Air Force. So that is about as uh, terrific a lineup as you can get, I think, on, on that side of things. Then um, in the startup world, we've also got a great crew. So uh, Chris Boish was in, well, he's a former founder who's now become a VC. Peter Beck from Rocket Lab is all signed up. Tim Ellis from Relativity Space. Mina Mitri from Kepler. That's a pretty good taste, I think, of, of some of the people that we've got. Uh, ben Longmire from Swarm. We're trying to cover the whole spectrum of interesting startups because they're imaging startups, there's uh, data, there's communications, there's this new category of uh, in-service. In-space services, yes, that's a that's a big one. And I was going to ask you about that, if you were keeping your ear to the ground on that. I just saw this story that Daryl, my colleague Daryl, who uh, does such a great job with space, Daryl Etherington, uh, HEO Robotics, which is satellites taking pictures of satellites, kind of uh, commercial Instagrams or something like that. It's just great. I mean, so there's that that big spectrum of really interesting startups. And then there are the launch startups. That's a big part of the show. And then the venture guys and the primes. So we have pretty good representation across the board uh, from the primes. Uh, people like Lisa Callahan, who's in, at Lockheed. And uh, let me see who else do I have here. Um, the venture guys who are working the venture angle at, at uh, Boeing and Lockheed. There are a few others that I can't quite talk about yet from the primes who are, who are also going to be on the agenda. So I think, you know, it's going to be about as well programmed an event as any of them out there in the space realm. But I think what TechCrunch brings to it, because all of these folks, of course, are well known and have appeared at many shows, but the TechCrunch interview style is, is very uh, quick. It's, you know, fairly short takes. It's very much to the point. It's uh, hard questions are encouraged. There's a lot of prep for these sessions, and uh, we try to make them as brisk and crisp as you can possibly get on stage, which makes them a lot of fun and has really earned uh, TechCrunch its reputation for producing great events. And for listeners who are interested in joining this event, stay tuned till the end of the episode, and we'll be sure to be able to... Ned's got a special discount order that we'll be able to put up for you. Yeah, yeah, we got a special discount. So just hold on. We'd love to pass that along. Ned, it seems like uh, the space sector has generally weather is weathering the COVID crisis fairly well. I guess you know the government see, sees uh, space as a critical part of its you know U.S. infrastructure, so there's still you know money flowing. Do you see any any comparisons or analogs to think about some of the crashes back in Internet 1.0 days that um, the space sector can learn from, or that it needs to do to make sure that it's not completely just dependent on the the uh, you know on the government dole. Have you have you have you given that any thought? Wondering you know how do we make this industry essentially self sustaining? I think it's it's all about the balancing act between taking the government money because it's a great way to grow and to develop your technology and your systems and all the rest, and at the same time um, developing the private marketplace as quickly as possible too. So you see this in in just look at the payloads of any given SpaceX trip, and you'll, you'll, there's quite a variety in there. Of course, there's a lot of military and NASA going on, but there's other stuff as well. I suppose if there were a real slowdown on the government side, you know, if there were a change in Washington and a de-emphasis on space, 
it would probably at this stage, my guess is bring about quite a chill on the space side of things. Um, but um, on the other hand, I think there are some very genuine national security concerns that are driving some of this. And who doesn't want to go to the moon and Mars? I ask you that, you know, <laughs> so it's hard to dial these things back, but it could happen, could happen. We also have to remember that the space industry is now intimately tied to the big data revolution. And a lot of very important companies depend on information that is acquired through companies like Planet Labs and Spire to be able to run their businesses efficiently. So yeah, I, I agree with you that if we had, say, another sequester similar to what we experienced in 2012, 2013, there would definitely be a culling. But the industry definitely seems a lot more resilient than what it was in the past. Whereas if you had any kind of an economic slowdown, half the companies that were out there would just fold the next day. Right, right. And I think we're, you know, we're, we're building toward that vision of space where um, it's not so closely tied to government spending, you know, uh, to your point, and, and, and to the idea of these, of the space tug uh, service sector emerging, and the rise of, you know, vast seas of small satellites, uh, uh, you know, just think about Starlink and, and all the industry that that's going to uh, create around itself from so many different angles. Well, not just Starlink itself, the model it represents of mega constellations, tens of thousands of satellites strong. Right. I think it's on the way for sure. And we just need uh, more companies like, like those and also uh, more companies in, like Daniel Faber's Orbit to grow up around them so that this, this is enough, more and more affordable. You know, really the promise of what SpaceX represented was the idea that a highly competitive company could come in there and undercut what the primes could do, because the primes were accustomed, of course, to uh, government contracts and doing business as usual. But Musk saw the opportunity and he's, he's proven it out. And, uh, you know, whether you're ISI or Spire or Planet or whatever, there's the, the uh, imaging and data revolution. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think there is just a huge wave rolling through this uh, world and it won't be as vulnerable to pullbacks on the government side this time, it'll probably catch a bad cold if it happens, uh, but it wouldn't be really irreparably set back, I would guess. So TechCrunch caters to a very diverse group of investors and entrepreneurs and, and probably readership. What could new space companies do? What do you think they could do to reach out to traditionally non-space investors? I'm guessing you've probably seen some of the worst pitches and the best pitches and everything in between. So there's still new, new space companies tend to be capital hungry, like many startups, but especially the hardware or hardware dependent ones. But many times, you know, space or non-space investors say, you know, it's too long of a time horizon or it's hardware dependent, or they just don't even understand or even know what the business model for these companies are. What do you think the, these new space companies could do to better kind of connect with, uh, to bring in uh, more capital? Well, that's a great question. You know, there are only a handful of VCs that would, you know, could really raise their hand and tell you in a compelling way that they know a lot about this category. One reason, of course, is that it's such a huge category. And another is that it's not a traditional uh, domain for venture. I think sometimes the conversation is too focused around what can VCs do for you in general, you know, whether it's blockchain or any other category. There's, uh, you know, there are other ways to bootstrap. And they don't have to kind of work, swim in the VC channel in order to be successful. So I think, you know, it's been great to see Boeing and Lockheed and Grumman and others 
uh, play their own role, encouraging the development of startups. Obviously, to see the initiatives coming out of the Air Force with Air Force Pitch Day and all those checks that they write and the vision of Will Roper has, has really pushed that along. And I think that one should have very moderate expectations of the VC world's ability to get in on this. The early stage investing is, is super risky in any case, and I think in minds of most VCs, doubly so in, a, in an exotic, difficult, and sort of out there return category like space. And the reason I think a lot of VCs and angels do it is either they know a lot about it in some cases, or they can't resist because they just love the idea of investing in space companies. It's probably a little both. And I've been there where I've, lo I've lost money in, in a space company. And I think probably every investor who's active has all lost money on deals. And, and it's, it's one of those things where it was a, lesson, you know, a lot of lessons learned from that company's failure. And it was around for more than a decade, but still very, di very difficult uh, sector to be in. Yeah, a lot of sunk investment, a lot of expensive technology. But who doesn't? I mean, I don't think there there. Well, there are a lot of categories that elicit huge passions and founders. But I would go out on a limb and say there's nothing like space. <laughs> I mean, Jeff Bezos pretty much said that he got into technology because to make money to fund his interest in space. That was fueled by reading um, Jerry O'Neill's High Frontier several times in high school. Oh, no kidding! That's really interesting. Well, I'm just uh, old enough to have watched the first season of Star Trek, and I, it's marked me forever. <laughs> I don't know if we can promote this, but there is a documentary that the History Channel did a long time ago that anybody who's really identifying with this spot right now called How William Shatner Changed the World. And it covers just every single invention of basically the latter half of the 20th century that can be directly traced to inspiration from uh, science fiction shows like Star Trek. That was fabulous. I'll have to check that out. I'll have to check that out. Ned, have you seen anything on your horizon around the kind of business to consumer models for the space tech sector? Not really. Do you have any? I, uh, can you give me an example of what that might be? It would be products or services that are somehow either manufactured or enabled by space or the space environment. Now, the closest thing I can think to that already exists or think when, when Keegan mentioned Star Trek is, you know, you have, you know, we have science fiction movies and space theme movies and then extensions like museums and collectibles. And, you know, they occasionally send up, you know, stickers or patches to space and they bring them back down. Um, but that's, you know, basically niche collectible areas and really not the type of markets we're talking about. But I think as uh, space tourism develops and on-orbit manufacturing and potentially some of these uh, interesting data services, we will see some. And I'll give um, one example of a business that's actually available today. There's a company uh, called Space VR. I think they are out of San Francisco. They are initially, they were trying to put VR cameras on satellites. I think even the space station, then satellites. And it was, I think, too difficult to make or maybe too expensive at the time to pull off. And now they pivoted and they have created a waterproof virtual reality headset. And they sell or lease, or, or lease these headsets to flotation tank companies, uh, which are sort of like spas around the world. And you can go in one of these flotation tanks with a VR looking at, I guess, I guess it's archived video footage of the Earth. And the idea is to try to recreate this the overview effect of looking at the Earth, you know, without borders. And, and it apparently engenders, uh, you know, some type of state of well-being. I'd love that. I'd do that. 
<laughs> there might be one near you. I, 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 it's called Space VR. So that's 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 one that's in business today. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose you could say that you know even even what Starlink is going to do eventually is B to C, right? It's it's going to uh, deliver connectivity, and um, so there will be some direct services coming from space. And then there's space tourism, of course. Uh, which is another interesting category that um, seems like it's about ready to hit mainstream or at least mainstream for very wealthy people pretty quick here. Yeah, maybe not even. Uh, and when we say very wealthy people, we're, we might we should probably really moderate that down to just reasonably wealthy people. I think uh, Virgin Galactic hasn't really changed their price tag to, to be able to head up on a ship. And that's something that someone who's well to do, but more like owns a few McDonald's franchises wealthy, not necessarily Elon Musk wealthy. What's a ride going to cost on Virgin Galactic? They had it at around uh, $250,000. I think it's, I think yeah. it's been, I think it's stuck at two fifty. I don't think they've reduced or increased the price. I think it's been like that almost since they, they announced uh, Virgin Galactic. Jeff Bezos envisions one day, you know, millions, if not billions of people living in the solar system. So he will have to make it very cheap. And I think Elon's the same way where he envisions having a city of 1 million people on Mars by the end of the century. So so for those th- types of activities to happen, they have to reduce launch costs immensely. Which is what they're currently dumping money into trying to do. Yeah, it's fantastic to see, isn't it? Uh, well, what's your, when do you think we're going to put a man on Mars? You guys think about these questions often enough. I'd say 2030s uh, comfortably. Early 2030s uh, is something we could do practically with the technology available either right this second or in the not too distant future, like within the next year or two. Robert, what do you think? I think it'll be before 2030 through SpaceX, even though um, Elon will procrastinate thing. He'll make an announcement and say, you know, we're, we're doing this by this year. And sometimes it ta- usually takes longer. I think he's going to actually try to get a crew there before 2030. That's, uh, you know, 2029, even if it's 2029, I think granted the moon is going to be our, if we can be on track to get humans back to the moon, that's going to be a big training ground because a six plus month journey to Mars is, is not a trivial thing. Musk has been pretty consistent saying 30 days is the eventual goal with 80 days for the first mission. So that's, that's a little bit more livable than uh, the standard six-month uh, transfer orbits they used to have. To, they still have to do with uh, NASA projects. I think uh, the moon is going to be uh, SpaceX's and really the space industry's bread and butter. There's a term called cislunar. You're going to be hearing a lot of in the not too distant future. Lockheed has been really laser focused on that as being the future of the industry's immediate playground. I think uh, Mars will initially be something that will be done with a lot of passion, but will be kind of seen as a side project. And the development of that cislunar economy will be something that that further fuels that. But in, but in And we've talked about this in greater details, listeners, on other episodes that you can find through our main portal. And Ned, you're, when we're coming back to business to consumer, I just thought of um, a different angle on it. So Tom Cruise announced that he wants to do a movie in space. And then it sounded like SpaceX is a partner with it. And NASA gave some sort of approval or yes that they're they're okay with and it sounds like i think maybe axiom space potentially is involved with it so if he goes up there with maybe one other crew you know film crew person and they shoot a movie on space and you know that could be said that that is part of the this you know growing space economy that you could you know using space as a movie set and and it would be you know and, and tom cruise has you know top a-list film person 
a film producer, very successful, working with SpaceX and NASA. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that potentially could just open a lot of, a lot of doors because right now there's not even a lot of film, you know, there's no live production here in the United States. So people might be thinking, oh gosh, we can go up to a space station and shoot something. And, you know, maybe $50 million is only a, a portion of a, a film budget that might have a $300 million budget, right? Yeah. Well, isn't that really clever though? You know, you think about it because it's an arena where we, where people who care about space and, and especially people in government can create a lot of excitement. If there are movies about uh, incredible things in space, um, I think Seven Eves is coming out sometime in the not too distant future. And there's this movie and all I the rest. I can't believe that one got greenlit. That is, that is a really high concept piece of sci-fi. Yeah, that'll be an expensive production. But the um, it reminds me of the, of, well, maybe not exactly, but there's a parallel with the uh, 60s. So Kennedy's speech about going to the moon and then all of the excitement around the Apollo launches. And uh, it really galvanized the country. I mean, it was really remarkable. And I think there are uh, people who understand that it's necessary if we're going to carry through on um, projects like Artemis and the Lunar Gateway and Mars and all the rest to get a lot of public excitement around it, you know, so that the budgets get approved by Congress and that there is a, a strong will in the nation to pursue these things. Uh, there are obviously a lot of uh, competing uh, demands for resources. In the bigger picture, space isn't all that much money, but it still needs enthusiastic backing. So I'm all for it. I think the more Tom Cruise movies we have and the more young people who really want to go to work for NASA or do research at universities that is funded by Aerospace Corp and NASA or want to join the Air Force so that they can be in the Space Command. I think that's all great. I think it it really uh, gives a lift in general to people in the nation, notwithstanding other things that we need to be doing. I agree. And I'd, and I'd probably add that the storytelling of what the benefits are to all these things, whether it's going back to the moon or Mars, Many times, they're definitely cool projects, inspirational, but I think sometimes it could be better storytelling, and this is maybe where um, you know, people like you uh, are, are helpful in, in sharing what are the benefits to society? You know, Why are we doing this? Well, the technology benefits uh, have been well-documented from the earliest days of the space program. I mean, so many things came out of that basic scientific research and uh, the engineering work that's been done. I'll tell you one of the most interesting things I have uh, experienced in the past is a uh, year or so was the first time I went to Aerospace Corp in El Segundo and the great team there took me on a, a little tour that's available to public visitors uh, to Aerospace Corp. And I was just reminded of, of how incredibly demanding these technologies are, the incredibly smart people who work on them and the things that have resulted from it, like GPS, for example, or missile guidance systems or uh, so many other things that um, are the just micro, the microchip that was originally created uh, for missile guidance on ICBMs. I mean, if it hadn't been for space, uh, for, granted for military applications, we would not have the computer revolution. No TikTok. No TikTok. No. TikTok. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, and, and that's I really kind of took my breath away. You know, Aerospace Corp, of course, is just one organization, but they've produced a lot of these technologies, as have you know, great university labs and um, and NASA and, and uh, uh, JPL and so many other organizations too. I'm not an expert in this field by any means. I just uh, was lucky enough to have this tour at aerospace and I was I was practically stunned when I walked out of that place with the reminders of all the technology that's been developed there and uh, the huge impacts that it's had. 
that's something that we hope we'll be able to learn more about how those impacts will look going forward at TechCrunch's Space 2020. Ned, was there anything else uh, you were hoping to cover about the event? Uh, I think you've got a really solid amount of content here. Yes, we do. Um, no, I just would like to um, invite everyone to participate. It should be a great, great show. In addition to the, the speaker lineup I spoke about, we've got almost every single uh, check writing organization in the uh, DOD and other government organizations making a presentation in a series of breakouts. Everybody from uh, the Air Force to DIUX to JPL, you name it, are going to be there to explain their programs uh, that can be uh, drawn upon by founders. And then we're also having a series of presentations from universities like UCLA and MIT about uh, the latest state of their work in connection with the Mars and, and Moon projects. So that should be another really fabulous uh, string of breakout sessions. And I'd also like to say that our discount code for uh, the show, anyone who cares to buy a ticket to uh, TechCrunch Space can get it online. Just uh, search for TechCrunch Space. And the uh, discount code is BRAVE15. That's B-R-A-V-E 15. And you'll get 15% discount on the show. Thank you so much, Ed. That's awesome. Ned, so question, what is your prediction for the next few years for space? Do you think we're going to have, um, do you think Richard Branson's going to be, uh, you know, get a rock band up in space? Do you think uh, Elon's going to make some wild announcement with Starlink? It seems like space, you always get a, just a few curveballs, which is one thing. It's great. It can be very unpredictable that way. What does your spidey sense tell you about what, the, you know, over the next, you know, I mean, we're at half, we're over halfway through 2020. 2020-21, do you think it's going to be just more more momentum of the, the current efforts? I think we're going to see uh, progress probably in fits and starts toward a truly commercial layer in space uh, that's self-sustaining and, and um, dramatically more elaborate than uh, we've seen in the past. And that that's cool and really interesting. I think on, as far as the moon is concerned, I think we're going to see a lot of competition, you know, as the Americans really gear up to create a permanent presence on the moon. I'm sure that others are not going to uh, sit still for that. Although my head might be a little too full of some of the scenes I saw in uh, that sci-fi film Astra uh, last year, <laughs> which <laughs> really got me thinking about what the future on the moon might be like, or that novel Artemis, which was a lot of fun. But I think that's that near term, I think it's going to really be about the moon and about the awakening around uh, this really self-sustaining, ever more elaborate commercial layer uh, in space, in particular, in orbit around Earth. I want to thank Ned Desmond, COO of TechCrunch, for joining us today on Brave New Space. Again, I'm Robert. And I'm Keegan. And thank you again for listening to Brave New Space. Stay tuned for other great insights and perspective on all things business and commerce uh, related to new space. And I want to remind listeners to go to spaceisopenforbusiness.com to uh, check out my forthcoming book, Space is Open for Business. Listeners, please visit spaceisopenforbusiness.com for information on my new book, Space is Open for Business. In my book, over 100 experts, including industry leaders and investors, share their insights into the economics and strategies for leading the trillion-dollar race to commercialize space.